Well, let's now open up our Bibles to Esther chapter 4 as we are making our way through this strange and wonderful book. We are in chapter 4. Actually finishing chapter 4 this morning. And once more, if you are able, let's stand together in honor of the word of the Lord. We do this not out of empty ritual. We do this to remind ourselves that, that our, 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 our existence here as a church, that what we do on a Sunday morning is not about our own preferences and persuasions and leanings. It is about the eternal truth of God, the living word of God that he has given to us. And so we stand to remind ourselves where the authority lies in this church. And it is not with a man. It is with the word of God. Hear now the word of the Lord from Esther chapter 4. We are picking up in verse 12. They told, Esther, uh, they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. This good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us, preserved for us, that by your spirit working through your word has called us from from death into life. Calls even now for us to come from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from From blinded eyes and deaf ears to true sight and hearing, I pray, God, that by your spirit, through your word, you would accomplish all of your good purposes in and among us today for your glory. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Araminta Ross was a, a girl who was born into slavery. Her parents were Africans who were, who were forcibly kidnapped and brought over here as, slave, as slaves. She was born somewhere around the 1820s. We don't know exactly when Araminta was born. She lived in abject poverty. She, she recounted even an, on cold nights having to put her feet in the embers of the fire just to stave off severe frostbite in her feet as a little child. At the age of five, they said, she's old enough to work full time. To work all day long as a slave. And so she was rented out to a nearby family. And when that family was unhappy with her work, they would whip her and they would beat her. When she was 12 years old, A runaway slave was captured and she was ordered to tie up that runaway slave and she refused to do it. And so the plantation owner threw an iron weight at the slave. Araminta stepped into the path of 
that weight and it crushed her skull, leaving her with lifelong problems, severe migraines, narcolepsy. When she was 30 years old, in a defining moment, she decided to risk her life by fleeing her enslavement. And she slipped away in the middle of the night to head from the slavery in the south to freedom in the north, to Pennsylvania. And she made it. She said, nobody was there to greet me. No one was there to welcome me. I was a stranger in a strange land. And I went to work immediately, getting a job in Philadelphia and saving every single penny that she could save. From that moment forward, all of her life was devoted to a single defining mission, to rescue other slaves from the South and to lead them to freedom. Of course, we know Araminta Ross by a different Name. She took on her mother's first name, Harriet. And when she married, she took her husband's last name, Tubman. And that's how we know her. Others across the nation knew her as Moses. She's one of the bravest women that ever lived. She was the most famous conductor in the Underground Railroad, which of course, kids, was not a railroad at all. It was just this path to freedom for Slaves. She made repeated trips down into southern slave territory, each more dangerous than the last, to rescue and lead others to freedom. At one point, this woman who was born into poverty as a slave had posters of herself all across the south, offering a bounty of $50,000. That's nearly a million dollars in our money today for her capture. She said, I would fight for freedom so long as my strength lasted. And if the time came for me to go, then the Lord would take me. She she made at least 13 trips to the south. Again, each each one mounting in danger as she became more and more well-known. She personally rescued about 70 slaves. She contributed to the rescue of hundreds more. Even at one point, uh, leading union forces into the south freeing hundreds and hundreds of slaves. And Frederick Douglass, who was perhaps the most famous abolitionist of the day, a former slave, he was asked to to offer a commendation for Harriet Tubman. And he addressed it directly to her. And he wrote these words to her. I need words of commendation from you more than you need them from me. The difference between us is very marked. Most of that I have done and suffered in the service of our cause has been in the public. I've received encouragement at every step of the way. I've worked in the day, but you've worked in the night. The midnight sky, the silent stars have been witness of your devotion. I know of no one who willingly encountered more perils and hardships to serve our enslaved people than you have. There is a reason that every American knows the name Harriet Tubman. She is rightly honored for her selfless and heroic, sacrificial action. And, and, and there's something in us that's moved by that. There's something in us that's moved by stories of someone who risks everything for a noble cause. Someone who, who risks it all for the good of others. Or for something that's just right or true or just. And as, as we resume our story of the book of Esther, we come to just such a defining moment in the story of Esther. The date has been set. Now we've been studying this book for a number of weeks. I'm not going to give a whole 
recap of all of it, but you can go back to the previous sermons and listen to them and hear all of that's, that's happened in this story so far. But a date has been set. The command has gone out across all the Persian Empire. It might as well be the known world. It is massive. It's an irrevocable edict, and the edict is this. All the Jews must die. It's an edict of genocide. We're, we're going to kill all of them. They cast lots to determine the date of the slaughter. It just so happens it's 11 months away. And on that day, the day determined by the casting of lots, every man in the Persian Empire must rise up against his neighbor if his neighbor is a Jew and kill him. So that there's not even one single Jew left alive on earth. And as this edict goes out, Devised by this wicked man, Haman, sent out by the king, this irrevocable edict of genocide, inside the king's palace at that very moment, unknown to Haman, unknown to the king, is a Jewess, the queen of the Persian Empire, Esther, who's won the crown and become king and is a Jew, and they don't know it. No one knows it. No one knows that Esther is a Jew. No one knows that, that, that this edict that has gone out, this irrevocable edict, has marked her for death, the queen herself. And the crisis of this situation becomes a defining moment for her. At the instruction of her older cousin, who is also her adoptive father because her parents are dead, man named Mordecai, Esther has been keeping it a secret that she is Jewish. And she's been keeping the secret, as we come to this point in the story, for about five years. She, she has been in the palace, not letting anyone know, but the time has come for her to make a decision. And so up to this part of the story, as we have gone through the book of Esther, Esther has been pretending to be a pagan. She has been living like a pagan. And up to this point in the story, she's been completely controlled by her circumstances. She, she has, in all the verbs that happen in the book of Esther, she's the passive recipient. She's, she's not directing any of the action. She's not initiating anything. She's just going along with whatever she is told. But now she faces this defining moment. Esther, it is time now to either embrace and take responsibility for the life God has given you. It's time for you to identify with God and his people or to remain silent and attempt to assimilate into this Persian culture. Attempt to, to blend into the pagan culture that surrounds her. So Mordecai sends word to Esther telling her of this plot to kill the Jews. With, with her sheltered Comfortable life in the palace. She doesn't even know that word has gone out. The, the whole city of Susa, the capital city of the Persian Empire, has been thrown into disarray. The people are, are lamenting and mourning. Word is spreading through the whole empire, but Esther, in her comfortable surroundings, doesn't even know. And so Mordecai sends word to her and commands her, it tells us in verse 8 of chapter 4, go to the king and beg his favor and plead with her on behalf of of her people. And then it's in chapter 4. In response to this command from Mordecai. That Esther speaks for the very first time in this story. And what Esther says in essence is this. No. No I'm not going to do it. In verse 11. All the king's servants she says. And the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king. Inside the inner court. Without being called there is but one law to be put to death. 
except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So Esther says, I'm not your guy. I'm not the one to do this. I, if you appear before the king, even if I appear before the king, these men with giant axes that are standing around his throne are going to kill me on the spot. My only hope is that the king will have mercy, this fickle, fickle man, and extend his scepter to me, and I touch the tip of it, and, and so my life is spared. It's about a 50-50 shot that he's going to kill me. And by the way, I haven't even seen him for 30 days. So we said, it turns out a massive thousand-woman sex contest is not the best way to build a strong, enduring marriage. It turns out. And so she, the king has lost some interest in her. His, his attention has turned to these other women, all of whom he kept, by the way. Esther's not this prized jewel to him anymore. And she says, I can't do this. So Esther's attendant comes back to Mordecai, tells him what she said, how she can't get involved, how she's powerless to change anything. And Mordecai is ready and anticipating that response from Esther. He knew this is the response he was going to get from her. Surely he anticipated her fear and her hesitancy. He knew it was a long shot. Even for Esther to go in and plead, this, this king who had put this, this edict out to the whole empire, this king who, when his wife refused to come to his party at the beginning of the story, deposed her and never saw her again. That this king wasn't going to take kindly to having been fooled for five years by this woman about her heritage and asked to, to reverse a very public edict that he had sent out. Esther was in an impossible situation. The things that she's saying are absolutely true. But Mordecai is ready for that response. And he, in turn, responds with an inspired response. He, he gives her three statements framing the reality of this moment. It's really it's a, a short speech, but one of the greatest speeches in history, it serves as a challenge to us still today. Look at verse 12. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Again, they're communicating via Esther's attendant here. They're not speaking directly to each other. Verse 13, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. His first motivation for her to take this bold and courageous action is this. He says, the Jews are going to be slaughtered across this entire empire. The date is set. This is going to happen. And Esther, you cannot hide from it. You can't hide in your comfortable palace. You can't hide just because there's a crown on your head. This is eventually going to find its way to you. If the Jews are marked for death, then you're marked for death. So you might as well admit who you are because this is going to come out. Leland Riken points out in his commentary, Esther is the only person in this story with two names. Her Hebrew name, Hadassah, which we are told, and her Persian name, Esther. And this, is, this I believe, is intentional on the part of the author. Esther, Esther here is, is, is caught in an identity crisis. This is the moment that identity crisis is coming to a head. And in a very real sense, this whole situation comes down to this. What name is Esther going to take? What name is she going to decide to live out? Is she a Persian? Is she a pagan? Or is she a Hebrew? 
who worships the God of Israel. Esther needs to make a decision right now. There's, there's no avoiding a decision. To not decide is to decide. She has to make a decision in this moment. So Mordecai tells Esther, you can't hide from this. The moment of decision is here. You belong to the people of God, Esther. It's time that you start acting like it. Your core identity is not queen of Persia. With all the accolades and earthly comforts that come with that, that's not really who you are. Who you are is one of the covenant people of God. And that's far greater. And Christian, that's true for us. This is true for us as well. What what Mordecai is saying to Esther is true for us. We cannot just hide our heads in the sand. We cannot just go along with the flow of culture because it would be easier and because people will look on us more favorably and our lives will be more comfortable and people won't call us names that hurt our feelings. We belong to God. We're citizens of his kingdom and that is far greater than another 60 years of people being nicer to us than they would be if they knew we belonged to God. If they knew that we we, we were members of his kingdom, concerned with his truth, concerned with his glory. The second thing he says in, in, in verse 14 is this. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. This isn't just a defining moment for Esther. This is a defining moment for Mordecai. We've talked quite a bit about how Jews like Mordecai and Esther shouldn't have even been in Susa anymore. It's been 50 years since they, the Jews were allowed to return to uh, Jerusalem, to return to the worship of God. And yet here they were in Persia. Here they were in the pagan empire. Why was Esther there? Why why was Esther in Persia when she should have been in Jerusalem? Why did Esther enter into this perverse and vile and wicked, lustful, one night stand contest with the king? Why did Esther spend a night with a pagan king? More than that, why did she marry a pagan king? The law of God forbids that. Why did she keep her Jewish identity silent? Which surely meant she had to break the law of God. She had to break God's dietary laws. She had to break the Sabbath laws in order to keep this a secret. Well, as we ask these questions, the first answer is this. Esther is absolutely responsible for everything that Esther did. Everything she did do and everything she didn't do, she is responsible for all her actions. But so is Mordecai. Mordecai is her adoptive father, and everything that Esther has done in the story so far, she's done because Mordecai told her to do it. So Mordecai is responsible, and yet something has changed inside of Mordecai as we come to this passage. He is effectively saying to her that he trusts that God is going to deliver them. God is going to deliver his people. He says, if you don't act, deliverance will still come for the Jews. It will come, he says, from another place. Now, now we know and we have talked much about it in the book of Esther. There's no mention of God. There's no mention of prayer. It it appears to be a purely uh, secular book. Except we see God at work behind the scenes orchestrating all of it and 
Commentators have seen that in this statement from Mordecai since the earliest of times. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, along with numerous other Hebrew commentaries dating back a thousand years, they viewed this statement as a veiled reference to God. The the Hebrew word that he uses here for place, makam, it's a word that Jewish rabbis would use to refer to God. They would call God the place. Mordecai says, deliverance is going to come. It's just going to come from another place, Esther, if you won't act. Mordecai knows the situation is dire. He knows how urgent it is for Esther to act. But he is also confident that God's plans are not going to fail. Mordecai knows that he might die. He knows that Esther might die. He knows that many, many Jews might die But he also knows that the Jews will not be completely wiped out. That God is going to somehow, as he has always done, keep a remnant for himself. That God's promises will stand. But that doesn't lead Mordecai to fatalism. He is urgently, persuasively pleading with Esther, you must take action. He warns her of the consequences of unfaithfulness. He says, yeah, God's going to preserve a remnant. All of the Jews are not, this wicked plan of Haman, this wicked plan really of, you know, God's not mentioned in this book, but neither is Satan. And both are very active in this whole story. This wicked plan of Satan to kill every Jew so that the Messiah could never be born. Mordecai says, that's not going to happen. God will not allow that to happen. But he says to Esther, God will preserve a remnant, but if you don't act, you're not going to be among them. This is why it's essential for the church of Jesus Christ. We must be about the work of the Great Commission here and now, in the place where we live, in the time where we live. I have full confidence that the Great Commission will succeed. That the gospel is going to go forth in power to the entire World that Christ will save his elect, that, that, that disciples will be made of all the nations. As we see these, these examples in the Bible that come from Christ, so the kingdom of God will be like leaven that works its way through the whole measure of flour. That the earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That Like that mustard seed, the kingdom of God will grow and grow and grow and grow. I have incredible confidence in these biblical promises that God will bring in the full number of the elect. The gospel will win out in all of the world and in our history. But my confidence in the future of America is not nearly so high. I have great confidence in the, in the gospel to win out in the whole world. But unless... The Lord grants repentance. This nation will be judged. And friends, all we have to do is kind of look around at the world around us and say, this world, this this nation is being judged. It's not a will be. It is being judged. Why has everyone gone insane? No one can reason about the simplest of things. Why are we... Why on earth do we think the youngest of children in school need a, a serious education about the most devious, deviant of sexual practices? And we're like, I think this is good. This is the way it should be. 
Why is anyone arguing for that? It's because we are under judgment already. And if we keep silent at this time, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ keeps silent at this time. Yes, I believe globally relief and deliverance will come for God's people, just as Mordecai told Esther, but our nation will not stand. The judgment of God is falling on us. The judgment of God will fall on us and it will fall hard. And so church, we must not, we must not keep silent. We must not bow the knee to any except the Lord Jesus Christ. We must be faithful. We must be bold. We must speak the truth and we must speak the truth in love. Then Mordecai, though, gives, gives Esther the greatest incentive. The greatest incentive for taking bold, courageous action in this defining moment. In verse 14, second half of verse 14, he says, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We've said this numerous times in the book of Esther. There's more going on here than our eyes can see. This book doesn't make mention of God. That's intentional on the part of the author. But everywhere, God is at work. God is orchestrating everything. And he tells Esther here, it's the hand of God that has put you here. As the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 17, God has determined the time and the place in which we live. He's done that for his purposes. None of this is random. None of this is coincidental. And this is really the greatest incentive for action in defining moments. It is about being involved in the plan and purposes of God. That God, for his own glory and his eternal goodness, has chosen to work through us. How amazing is that? The God who spoke all things into existence, who can do whatever he wants. The God who channels the hearts of even kings in his hands like channels of water. He directs them. That God has chosen to work through us. And we just kind of look at ourselves and we go, I'm kind of a weirdo. I'm not that smart. I'm not that eloquent. I'm not that holy. God has chosen to work through us. It is, it is astounding. And so the, the providence of God, God's, God's working all things out in all of history. It not only requires our surrender to God. It not only calls us and causes us to trust in him. But it's more than that. The providence of God actually invites us to participate with him as he carries out his sovereignly ordained purposes. That is glorious. It's this mind-blowing part of this mystery of the synergy between the will of God on the one hand and the obedience of his children on the other hand. That God has, has chosen to work through these means to accomplish his ordained purposes, which will surely come to pass. And so the same Jesus who says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, is the same Lord who commands his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He, how is he going to build his church such that the gates of hell won't prevail against it? Well, it's through us. 
It's through his church. It's through our obedience and our action. He's chosen to work through us. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him unless they, on whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? God works through means. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how's anyone going to call? Somebody's got to tell them. Somebody's got to tell them. That's the only way. But God works through means and He's chosen that those means would be us when it comes to salvation. God did not show up this week to help decorate for VBS. We we didn't just get here one morning and it was done. He won't be coming this week to do any of the teaching. God isn't signing up to work in the nursery. He's not putting money in the offering to keep the electricity on in this building. God has chosen to work through means. Christian, do you live your life with a sense of that divine purpose? A sense that God is directing your life in such a way that he intends to use you for his good and glorious purposes. That not only bring glory to him, but are good for you. Are for your eternal joy. That that this eternal cosmic plan of God that he is working out. That you have a speaking role in that. And that that's what your life is. Even if your life appears rather ordinary. Even if your life appears mundane to the rest of the world. The truth is even if the world does think your life is mundane. And even if you do feel kind of bored with it. It's actually supernaturally glorious, Christian. That's what your life is. It might look like raising kids. The daily grind of laundry that never, ever, ever goes away. And we don't know how. These little people make so much laundry. Of doing the dishes that never stop. Of helping the kids with their studies. Of sweeping. Of of the daily grind of family worship. Whatever it is. It might look like working in a factory for long, exhausting hours to provide for your family. It might look at times like barely scraping by and wondering how you're going to make it. It might look like being a grandparent or a great-grandparent, trying your best to help establish a legacy of faith. Whatever it is, do you see it as more than just ordinary life? Do you see that divine providence has placed you right here, right now, with these people that surround you for God's good, eternal, and glorious purposes? That's what it means to be one of God's people. That is the the truest reality of your life. As Mordecai would say to Esther, being queen is not, not the truest thing about you. It's not the most important thing about you. You belong to God. You're here for his purposes. When you look at your life that way, as being for the glory of God, for the sake of his kingdom, as a part of his eternal plan, when you see your life that way, it will motivate you to faithfulness in whatever he has put before you. 
How, how do we obey these, these biblical commands to whatever your hand finds to do? Do it with all your might. To be content with much or with little. To do all things for the glory of God. How do we obey that? Well, it's by seeing our lives this way. To see our lives in this way gives us a sense of purpose. Gives us a sense of passion. It gives us a sense of courage. I'm reminded of that, that old story of the two men building a, building a large cathedral. Laying bricks. And the one man is just grumpy and angry as they labor out in the hot sun. And the other man is just joyfully singing to himself as he builds. And the, the grumpy guy turns to the other guy and goes, how can you be so happy about this miserable work? And he said, well, you're just laying bricks. I'm building a cathedral. The truth is, the way we see our lives makes a huge difference. How, how do we have purpose? I remember working with a man once when I was managing a basketball club. And he, he was a few years, he was a really old guy. Like he was probably my age that I am now. I was just in my 20s and thought people my age are like these impossibly old people. And he said to me, how do you do this every day? We work at a basketball club, this meaningless job. How do you feel like your life has any meaning? And I said, because I just work here because they pay me. This doesn't define who I am. This isn't what my life is about. I had a chance to share the gospel with him. But there's actually something better for us than letting the world define us by whatever labels they want to put on us, by what our job is or what our income is or any of the other categories the world wants to give to us. There's something greater than that. There's something more than that. There's something truer than that. There's something better than that. That motivates us. It gives to us courage. So Mordecai tells Esther, your beauty... Your grace, your winning personality, your, your entry into and winning of this queen contest, the king's choosing of you over thousands of other women, all the other women in the empire, your position as queen in the kingdom of Persia, none of that was random. All of that had purpose in it. In fact, it was for this very God-ordained moment. And this short speech of Mordecai this challenge from Mordecai convinces Esther and she immediately puts action to her conviction. First, she calls the Jews to a fast. In verse 15, Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Now we're told previously when this edict went out that all the Jews had already been weeping and fasting and lamenting. But now Esther wants to give some direction to their fasting. She wants them to fast and what goes along with fasting but prayer? To fast and pray on her behalf. Now, of course, prayer is not mentioned in the book of Esther, just like God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. But this is clearly exactly what she had in mind. She doesn't want them to just send good thoughts her way. What's more special and meaningful than that in the midst of a real crisis? I'm sending good thoughts. Well, that's great. Can you send chocolate? At least that'll do something for me. She wants them to fast and pray. That the Lord will grant success to her as she 
takes this courageous step. And it's a significant, severe fast she's calling for. Most fasts were only during the daytime. This fast was to be day and night, around the clock. This fast was beginning on the eve of Passover. And so this three-day fast would interfere with that all-important celebration. So she understands the gravity of this moment. She understands the desperation of this moment. So she calls for an appropriate response. Tell all the Jews to fast for me. And she solidifies her identification with the Jewish people. In verse 16, it goes on. I and my young women will also fast as you do. In other words, identity crisis is over. Esther has made her decision. She is one of God's people, not a pagan. She's going to stand in solidarity with God's people. Now, up to this point in the story, I haven't really liked Esther all that much. She's not that impressive of a She's very beautiful. She must have a great personality, morally corrupt, and just not doing the right things, and just a pushover. Everybody who tells her what to do, and she just does it. She's not that exciting, but something has changed in her. And now she's starting to say these things and do these things. Her, her moral character has been solidified as well. And she identifies she's going to stand in solidarity with God's people. This is similar to Moses' identification with the Jews over and against his Egyptian royalty. I may hold this position in the culture, but these are my people. This is my God. Her identity crisis is over. And for the rest of this story, this, this pushover of a woman, this, this, beautiful, this beautiful woman who appears to be nothing more than a face and a body is a transformed person. She's different. Third, she surrenders herself to the will of God. Going on in verse 16, then I will go to the king Though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Esther's only been ordered to do things. She's only been commanded to do things. And now, all of a sudden, she is ordering. She is commanding. She is instructing. What a transformation. Brian Gregory, in his commentary, says this. Significantly, Esther has been transformed in the crucible of crisis. For the first time, Esther is not just passively floating downstream in the current of Persian culture. She's willing to swim upstream to do what's right. She no longer just accepts whatever Mordecai tells her to do, but for the first time, she takes action and she tells Mordecai what to do. In fact, up to this point, Esther has been the object, not the subject of most verbs. And has not spoken one word in the story, but from now on she is shrewd and able to, she is a shrewd and able figure, initiating the action, able to execute her plans, obtain royal favor, and defeat her people's enemy. This was Esther's defining moment. And suddenly now, doing what is right is more important to her than her own comfort. It's more important to her than her own safety or her own well being. This transformation has come because Mordecai spoke truth to her. Mordecai showed her there's more going on here than what your eyes can see. It wasn't enough for Mordecai just to show her this edict has gone forward and here's the reality of our situation. He needed to to pull back and let her see what was going on behind the scenes. The reality of the situation. That you are part of a much larger providential plan. 
that the circumstances that have brought her to this moment are not random. They're not accidental. They are not happenstance. They have actually been orchestrated by God himself in order to give Esther an indispensable, a crucial role to play in God's deliverance of his people. And that changes her mind. That perspective of what's really going on, exactly who God is and how he is working. But even in this transformation, Esther is far from perfect. We'll see as we get into the end of this story, as we see all the commendable traits of Esther as the story goes on, there's still a rather concerning amount of bloodlust that comes in at the end of the story. She's not perfect. Really, her defining moment is only a shadow of the greatest defining moment in the history of the world. Esther faced potential death by going to the king. A lot of commentators speculate it's about 50-50. The king, king does like her, so he might spare her. But we know from history what kind of king Xerxes was. It's about 50-50. The Lord Jesus Christ did not face possible death. He faced certain death. Worse than that, the wrath of God. And as he came to this moment in the garden, this defining moment, he did not retreat into self-protective avoidance. He did not cower in weakness. He responded with courage and conviction and faith. How did he pray in that garden in that moment? Father, be thy will. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He went to the cross knowing that he would face excruciating physical pain, knowing that he would endure heartbreaking shame as the lowest segment of society gathered around him as he hung bleeding and tortured and naked on a cross, spitting at him, mocking him. Well, there was something far greater he was facing, that, and he knew it. He knew that he would bear the wrath of God for our sin. Esther thought, there was a chance if I go to the king that I'll lose my life. But there's a chance he's going to extend that scepter and I will be spared. The Lord Jesus Christ knew he would not be spared. Knew that he would endure all of this. Knew that he would die. But he went knowing that his substitutionary death would accomplish the deliverance of all his people. Something far greater than the deliverance we see in the book of Esther when the tables are turned and and God's people are spared from the physical death that came from Haman and Xerxes' wicked edict to kill them all. No, this deliverance was far greater. An actual accomplishment of salvation Salvation not from physical death, but salvation from the judgment and condemnation of sin. Deliverance from the enemies of sin and death and evil. The Lord Jesus Christ went to his death knowing that it was not an attempt, but that it was a complete and total victory. Esther was going to the king in this courageous and noble act to attempt to save her people. The Lord Jesus Christ made no attempts. He accomplished salvation. Because that's true. 
Christian, we have a far better perspective than Esther did. When it comes to our own defining moments, we have a far greater perspective on this side of the cross of Christ. If God is for us, who could be against us? If he didn't spare his only son, but gave him up for us, then how will he not give us in him all things? We live our lives, we face our defining moments knowing that Christ conquered Satan and sin and death. That God has and is and will accomplish every single one of his good and eternal purposes. And when we come to these crucial defining moments in our lives, these these make or break moments, these crisis moments, we know these things to be true. And we stand on what we know rather than what we see and rather than what we feel. But the truth is, our defining moments most often don't look nearly as dramatic as Esther's. None of us have had a whole race of people depending on us to take action or they're all going to die. Our defining moments will certainly never be as weighty as Christ's. More often, it just simply looks like day-to-day choices. Day-to-day living. I get up on a Tuesday morning. What will I do? What will I choose? Will I live for Christ or will I live for myself? Will I speak the truth in love or will I keep silent? Will I rebel against God or will I obey him? These are what our moments look like. And Brian Gregory, again, in his commentary, let me just give him the final word here as it relates to that. Our calling is to trust by faith that God's providential hand has placed us just where we are for such a time as this. And then to set our hearts on the one who gave himself for us. For if our hearts are set on him and his love for us on the cross, we will be able to take up our cross and follow him. No matter what crisis we face, what crucible of testing we are in. We look to Christ, the author, the finisher of our faith. We look to Christ who lived for us. Who obeyed God in all the ways that we fail. Who died for us, taking on himself the wrath of God that we deserved for our sins. Righteous, holy wrath. We look to Christ who said it is finished. Our debt paid. We look to Christ who gave to us in exchange for our condemnation, his righteousness. So that now when the holy judge of the living and the dead, God who, who sits enthroned, looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son and not our own fickle good deeds or bad deeds. We look to him who intercedes for us at the right hand of glory even now, testifying on our behalf that our debt has been paid. The one who reconciles us to this God who in Christ is our father. The one who will surely return for us. Who's promised to not leave us as orphans. The one whom in in the new heavens and the new earth we won't need a son because his glory will give us light. We look to this Jesus. And we let him define not only our biggest moments, 
but our Tuesday mornings to live for him, for his glory as his people, knowing that his victory is complete and secure, knowing that he has promised that none of our efforts in the Lord are in vain. Since we belong to him, God will accomplish every single one of his good and perfect purposes. And we trust in him and we look to him and we live for him. What a glorious thing that is. What a glorious calling that is. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this challenging message from Mordecai to Esther that you have preserved for us. And that we are challenged, Lord, to live in obedience to you, to, to act boldly for you. We pray, Lord, that you would grant to us the courage to live in these dark days as shining lights in this world. Grant that we would be a city set on a hill. Grant that our lives would, would so adorn the gospel of Christ that people would see your goodness. They would see your power. They would see your love when they look at our lives. Grant to us humility. Grant to us your love. For this lost and dying world, Lord, that we would not be guilty of the things we're accused of, of bigotry and hatred and pride. Lord, let us be faithful to you. Let us speak the truth and speak it in love. Let us walk with the humility and thankfulness that befits those who have been saved by your grace, not by our own goodness or wisdom. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in us and through us and that you would use us, Lord, to glorify your name. Use us to fill this earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.